just walk in your truth. Everything that happened to you, you own it. It's your story and you have the right to express it and tell it however you feel like you need to in order for you to reach a place that you're able to heal and confront your trauma, no matter what that looks like. Hi, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I'm here today with Janita Nichols, who is a speaker, writer, and the author of The Secrets of My Mother, Breaking Free from Generational Curses and Trauma. And thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Trauma, PTSD, abuse, childhood sexual abuse, substances and addiction, depression, suicide, religion, spirituality, police, racism, systemic oppression, and generational trauma. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. Are you okay? Yes, I am. I'm doing amazing. Not to take away from, you know, anything else, but I am. I am doing great. And I would love to hear a compliment that you've received that you've never forgotten. Um, I would say the best compliment is kind of like a insult and a compliment at the same time. <laughs> someone told me that I was capable of so much more than what I was giving myself credit for. And mm. I I never forgot that. And I think at this time I was in like a giving up place. And so they were kind of like calling me out on my stuff, but then also trying to help me recognize my potential. And so I've always remembered that and it has never left. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Those are the, yeah, those are the ones that stick sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely helped me get up. So (laughs) that's what's important. Yeah. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you got up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And what is your favorite color or color combination and what do you associate with it? I love rose gold. I used to have like a list of like 10 colors that I like, but I think rose gold has kind of like grown on me. Um, Mm. Mostly because I love gold. I was always a gold jewelry person, but it's just something just eloquently just beautiful about the rose nature of it that just, it really just sticks out to me and it kind of represents royalty in some sort of way. So I love everything rose gold. Like my ink pen that I write with every day is rose gold. And my book that I, you know, write in is also. So I would definitely have to stick with that one. That's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) It does have a very special quality to it. You're right. It does. It's just different. It's not like any of the other colors. It's just, it's something about it that's just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it just sticks out and just grabs me. (laughs) Yeah, it's very unique because it's it's interesting because gold is already like a warm color, but then that yeah. quality of the rose is just so yeah. yeah. It's, it's I don't appreciate it enough. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and do you just you you mentioned royalty? Is that your association with it? Yes, it's just it just it's I don't know. It's so weird, but like I said, it's just it's different and it sticks out and it definitely just feels just royal. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's definitely, it symbolizes like power to me of just, mm. just the process. Cause you know, go, go through a very tough process to be refined, you know, like it goes through the fire in order for it to come out, you know, in its purest form. 
And so it just symbolizes my life, like just going through the fire. And yeah, you come out as gold, but then add rose in that. And it's just like, man, you can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so I'm so glad you said that. That was so beautiful. <laughs> I didn't mean to make it poetic. It just came out that way. But that's you can't help it. <laughs> You're a writer. I know. Awesome. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you had to pick five things to truly represent who you are, what would they be? I will have to say my Bible. It's kind of cliche, but it really is. It definitely is one of my things. And because I love music, uh, it's like a, a perfect worship playlist. And I know that's not a thing, but it's a thing, you know, to me just is something that I make tangible. But um, that, a camera, I would say a nice pair of sneakers, like an awesome dope pair of sneakers and some chicken. And I'm good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How are you cooking the chicken? Fried, definitely. Air fried, though, because I don't use flour. So, so ah. using it, throw it in the air fryer, put a little bit of Frank's hot sauce on it, and we're good. Ooh, Yeah. We just got an air fryer and we're like just trying it out. So we'll have to give that a try at some point. I'm addicted. I put everything in there. So <laughs> that's what I hear. I hear people fall in love with them. Yeah. That and the pressure. <laughs> I don't need any pots and pans or anything. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to hear more about your Bible. What's its history? Um, So it's crazy because when I was a kid, I despised the Bible um, because I felt like it was a way that people try to, especially in my family, my mother specifically would try to like control my decisions. Like, you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And so it kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth and I didn't appreciate it when I was younger, mostly not because I didn't read it, but because of what the influence was around it and the story that people created with it. But when I got older, um, I kind of, you know, just got introduced to it by accident. And when I started to just like read it for myself, and try to gain my own perspective of it and not what everyone else is, else said, it started to have, you know, sort of a value to me. And so it definitely helps keep me grounded. And I read it, you know, daily to just kind of just help me get through, I guess, and understand. Thank you for sharing that. I talked to a lot of survivors and a lot of them grew up uh, with some, some form of uh, Christianity in their life and, and ends up struggling with it because yeah. of uh, the way the way their family uh, kind of presented it to them. Uh, yeah. It was that controlling aspect. and um, It's traumatizing. And it can be. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's generally like a lot, a lot more of the people I tend to talk to. And so it's really, it's so beautiful to talk to somebody who has managed to, to have a new relationship with it. Um, yeah. A, a transformed relationship. Yeah, yeah, pretty dope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite passage? I love Ephesians. I love the whole book of Ephesians. I think I probably can know that by heart if I tried, but I just I just love that book itself, just the way that it teaches about God's love, you know, and teaches about mm-hmm. love it, it, in itself. But I mean, I love the Bible to me is like watching a movie. So there's like not necessarily as my favorite scripture. I like the story itself, like the whole book, because if I could pick out a scripture, there's so many different meanings, you know, that I can get from just one. But understanding the whole book itself is is very important to me. And so yeah, just learning about God's love and mm-hmm. you know what He says about it and what He thinks about you know us and just instructions for just living, you know, this mm-hmm. life is 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 very very important to me. 
And what are three essentials to your self-care? Quiet time is a must. There's sometimes, because, you know, I didn't know I was a writer my whole life, but now it makes sense. And if I probably wrote stuff down sooner, it would have helped to my sanity (laughs) of controlling (laughs) my thoughts. But now it's like my mind doesn't stop. So just trying to just shut off everything and sometimes just lay there and just, just allow my mind to just go without any distractions is very therapeutic to me. So quiet time. And I love to sleep. Sleep is like very important of me just resting in prayer. Not even just like some form of prayer where I'm like bowed down in front of a rug. Like I could just be laying there on my back and just start talking, you know? It's, so that's kind of like pretty good to me and just the music playing in the background. So yeah. Yeah. I like that you mentioned that prayer doesn't have to be like bowed down on a rug that, it, you know, it's it's any kind of communion really. Yeah. Yeah, just communication. Yeah, just talking. Like sometimes I'm mad and I'm expressing my frustrations, and sometimes I'm happy. So it's just like whatever state I'm in, I just I say it and I just you know talk to God because He understands. So just that Mm -hmm. vulnerability I'm able to have just by myself is very important. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. And now I'd like to to talk about your book. Okay. Yeah. So I love to hear about your your writing process because it's it's a very powerful uh and intense book it's quite a read yeah well thank you i'm happy to know that you read it and you actually got it so you mean the process that i took in writing it or just was my process overall in writing yeah just just the whole thing because it's like i can tell just by reading it that there was a very intense journey behind it even before like if if I even if I hadn't talked to you just yeah. reading this wow yeah it definitely was a journey i think that this book took about 5 years to actually happen i had the title about 5 years ago but once i got the title i don't believe my heart was in a place to make my writing therapeutic i think it would have come from a place of um anger and uh retaliation versus this book to me came to the point of trying to help not only me, but my family gain some sort of healing. And so the process of writing it, it, I went through a lot. I went through, you know, seasons of depression, seasons of what I thought was happiness. And then when I actually sat down to create it and put all of that together, I believe that it was, it was a journey. It was sometimes where I couldn't write. There's times where I, I would just you know, break down and cry and have to give myself some time. But I think the biggest thing was me having to have conversations with my mother that were never had. I think that was the biggest, the biggest step or the biggest obstacle was because it, it caused healing in our relationship and it began healing in our relationship, but it also was freeing for her to finally talk about things that she never talked about. Yeah. I really, I was very curious when I was reading it, you Oh, you you portrayed the lives of um of your grandmother and of your mother with such empathy and so much detail. And I found myself just thinking about I, I just had a real sense of uh of the, the conversations yeah. and the, the communication that must have happened in order for you to be able to do that. And uh what what were those conversations like? So the first thing is I had to have compassion for all of my characters that I wanted to write about in a book. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't just come from a place of judgment. And when I was able to have compassion, even when I revealed some of the bad things that they said or did, I wanted to 
speak to their heart of what they wanted, not just necessarily their actions and also what they had been through. So that was very important. And it was easy for me because I know them too personally, you know, because they're my mother and my grandmother. So capturing their personality wasn't hard. But I kind of looked at, you know, when I was there and I was around for some of the conversations that they had and just the way they talked to each other and treated each other. It wasn't hard to come up with a dialogue, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, when my mother, you know, would speak to how my grandmother was on drugs, I would just ask questions. I didn't just ask what happened. I asked my mother, like, well, how did that make you feel? Or what was your perspective, you know, of what she said or what she did? So I was able to capture her mind in that time. And then I would talk to my grandmother, like, you know, I wouldn't tell her what my mother said as far as what happened. I would ask for her version of it, you know? And a lot of it, my grandmother didn't remember. But one thing that she did, you know, attest to was how horrible of a person she was, you know, when she was on drugs and, you know, her, you know, regrets. And it was able, I was able to just, you know, picture the dialogue and I had the incidents there and they may not have been able to tell me word for word what was being said, but I think I let my imagination kind of do the rest, you know? So that was mostly just mostly it. And I don't just ask surface questions. I just try to ask so much of details like, you know, how did that make you feel? Or what does that look like? Like, what is your experience when you feel this way? What do you typically do? You know, like when you're hurting, what is your reaction to what, you know, your mother said or did? And when I found out with my mother that sometimes in her rejection or, you know, when she felt attacked or felt alone, she turned towards sex. And her turning towards that, it allowed me to be able to, you know, capture that in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did a beautiful job, like the way that you approached them. I really, yeah, I love that you mentioned that you had to kind of wait for it to not come from a place of like anger or resentment because mm-hmm. what you, by waiting for that right time, yeah, you did a beautiful job. I really got a sense of them as people and not through like a filter of anger from your perspective, I, it just felt like you really just stepped into each of their shoes. And I got a sense of their, not just their struggle, but also like that sense of their, their hopes, their, their dreams, their desires that they did want to be better. And, you know, they wanted good things for themselves, you know, for, for their family and, uh, and just that, uh, the pattern just kept emerging and uh, and was so hard to to get out of and um, I think you did a really beautiful job and oh, it's uh, thank you <laughs> that means a lot <laughs> well and it's uh seeing that pattern is so difficult for so many of us and uh, and I think it's such a beautiful reading this it's such a beautiful glimpse into someone breaking the cycle like seeing it making it tangible and uh, internalizing it sharing it and the work that you're doing healing it yeah and uh and it's just it's astounding well thank you thank you so much for you know saying that because it means a lot you know in my mind to want to do something but then to hear on the other end you know that that was accomplished is is definitely you know a good feeling so i'm i'm definitely great that even before me telling you what i was trying to do you kind of got what it was that I was doing. So I feel comfortable that I'm heading in the right direction. <laughs> Yay. And you're working on part two, you said, yeah? Yeah. Yep. So yes, yes and no. It's kind of weird. So mm-hmm. it is going to be a part two, but I can't yet reveal the way that part two is going to come about, but it's going to be different. 
is going to be to me more captivating and dramatic in a way that uh, it reaches a lot more people. And I think that people can visually get the picture of what I'm trying to create. All right. I won't, I won't pry too much, even though I really <laughs> want to know. But, um, I gave it away in those, in what I said, it was like some little hints there. So maybe if you go back, you can kind of, kind of catch okay. and put it together. <laughs> I gotcha. gotcha. Uh, how has, how has writing this book transformed your understanding of your family and of yourself? I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird because this book has, done some damage, but damage in a good way to my family. I believe the damage that it caused is kind of where everyone has to face their truth about what really happened in their lives and what's happening at this point. And some relationships, you know, faced a lot of tension and static, but, you know, at home it's kind of modeling it, it kind of started to open the door to all of us facing our truths. You know what I'm saying? Like walking in truth and being able to recognize our issues and our errors and just try to really seek healing so that we can break the pattern. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. Um, it does. So that's that's been a, a very important thing. And it's like, okay, well, if we can start here. Well, what else do we need to get out on the table and talk about and resolve within ourselves? And I think that 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 is very important because it it pretty much picks up the problem by the root and not just trying to put like ornaments on a Christmas tree to cover up, you know, the issues that really is there and the gaps, you know, that are there. Yeah. Healing those wounds, like those deep wounds, you know, sometimes like you got to clean them and that process stings. Yeah, and, uh, it does. It does. It's it's that reveal, like bringing bringing stuff out into the open. Like it can cause tension. And I'm really glad you talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Walking in your truth requires you to have a lot of tough conversations and come to a lot of tough, you know, revelations. And I think it's a good thing. We can't look at the things that it reveal as a bad thing, and we can't allow it to condemn us to feel guilty or to you know be upset. It, it takes a very mature person and an intentional person to come to those revelations. I think that it will speak more to what you do with those revelations than the revelation itself. Because mm-hmm. we all we all have made mistakes. We all, you know, have done some things in our past that we aren't proud of. But our pain can be a purpose for someone else if we allow it to be. Well said. Yeah, yeah. I think I think owning those mistakes and being honest about them without judgment, as you said, that's, um, can be a gift to everybody. Well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be in this place. You know, it's a journey, you know, the book, the book to me was just the beginning of the impact that, you know, I want to have on this world. I think that it, it was the start of something new and I'm excited, you know, to hold something in my hand that, you know, I created and that I worked towards and to see it be impactful is very it, it means a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing it with the world. Uh, it's, it's so personal. I think it's very important and I think, um, I think it's going to help. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So I loved the way that you used music in your book and I wondered if music <laughs> is a big part of your life. And you did mention that earlier. <laughs> you know what? You have read this book probably in more detail than anybody 
that I, I can probably speak for. Um, it's <laughs> how you just it's just awesome how you pick out some of the the small parts that were key to me, you know, other than just reading this like you read it with attention. So I definitely I truly appreciate that. But yes, oh, thank you. Music is a big part of my life, and I feel like music has music sets the tone for me. Is very important to me. Like I love music. I love everything about it. And I believe that it also helps in transitions of our life, you know, for me in the book, I wanted people to be able to, there's certain songs, like one thing that it is, is like the song, what I did for the song selection was I went back to that time and picked songs that were popular at that moment. So whatever year that it was, what was the popular song from the year? You know what I'm saying? So that anyone Mm -hmm. who reads it and sings that song in their mind and in their body, because music is a feeling, like music gives you feelings. They're able to kind of like feel where we are at this point in life. Like, so 1988 and I chose New Edition, If It Is In Love, you're able to remember that song, remember the feelings that you had where you were when you heard that song. Like, I don't know if that happens to you now, but it happens to me. Absolutely. Like, it's like time travel. <laughs> yeah. And so you that's get exactly sucked back. Like, yeah. And so that's what I wanted to do. Like, that's how I am. When I hear certain songs, I might sit there and be like, oh, I remember, you know, where I was and what I was doing when this song came on. You know what I'm saying? And it it brings back some of those feelings that you had. So when people read this book, even if you weren't around at that time, you know, you can still let me look this song up and see what was going on during this time. So then in your mind, you can envision it more clear and you can instead of just knowing that Tracy was dancing around her room, you have the song in your head and you can picture her dancing. So that was kind of where I went for that. I loved the story of um, of her and the the Michael Jackson glove and like yeah. her threatening like no I'll start wearing it again like yeah. just around you that was so cute yeah and that embodied that to me that was an embodiment of something that I and it's funny my mother did not tell me that herself I remember hearing that story a long time ago of how you know she was so infatuated with Michael Jackson so. When I was writing her, I tried to remember and reflect on what are some of the things that I know about her from her childhood? You know, like what are some some yeah. details that kind of speaks to who she is to give her more personality? And just by me saying that, you can assume like, oh, she must have been a real diehard Michael Jackson fan. So it kind of gives you more of a connection with her as a character. So not as just my mother, but as Tracy, it kind of connects you to Tracy to say, oh, okay, yeah, she definitely liked Michael Jackson. Either I did or I didn't. And it's kind of like you begin to develop a relationship with her on paper. So that's kind mm-hmm. of what I went for for that. So that's pretty dope. Yeah, I loved it. It it gave me a sense of like moments that you weren't there for in the book, but of her like growing up, maybe wearing the glove in a room, dancing around, listening to an album. Yeah. And like maybe, and also spoke to her character because that's maybe something that somebody might be embarrassed about or like, you know, kind of cringe, like if somebody brings it up. But I loved that her friend was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, that's so goofy. You know, you used to do that. That was embarrassing. And she like owned it. And she was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to start wearing it around you. (laughs) Like, I'm going to do it. I'm still love it. I would do it and just like met that and didn't shy away from it. And because that's, not everybody can do that, especially at that age. So I got a real sense of her character and her um, her personality and her boldness. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's definitely pretty dope. I'm amazed. You know, I'm, I'm amazed that you're just like your your revelation of the book is definitely uh, awesome. <laughs> 
like seriously, it's like blowing my mind right now because it's oh, just, thanks. You know, I put so much effort into those parts, and with everyone who has told me about my book or what they thought and how amazing the story was and their connection, it's like you're noticing the small little details that I added. You know what I'm saying? Like if I would have said she dropped her pen, it's like you you saw that and you saw the reason behind it. So I'm telling you, that's that's pretty dope. Really oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm super visual. When I read something like I yeah, I I'm a big reader and I just like I dive into something and I get uh it's it's like a movie playing in my mind and uh and it was like reading it uh and the music, the music definitely helped like the little stories that you helped like it gave me a sense of time and, and personality and um and it was yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. You just excited me. So I can't, I'm the the thing I'm working on. You just made it better. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, yeah, the, I'm, I'm a detail person. I love details and, uh, and our, our lives are made up of them and they, they do just flesh out who we are as people. Yeah, they do. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Mm. I would love to hear about your healing process, if you have any, like we're, we've kind of been talking around it a bit, but um, I'd love to hear more about that. As far as where I am now, like present day? Well, if, if you're willing to, to speak more directly to, to what you've been through and mm-hmm. how you got to where you are now and what you're doing to, to heal. By the time I was about 15, 16, I had been sexually victimized over 300 times. And that's me just trying to put a number on it. I really can't tell you how many times it occurred in my childhood. But when I think back to my childhood, you know, some people have memories of things that they did or, you know, fun experiences is really blank to me. I don't remember anything from my childhood other than one thing that wasn't traumatic. And so as a child, I never knew how to heal because for so long the pain was continuing to occur. And then when I turned 16 and, and or 15 and ended up going into the system, I was abandoned. So you take that on top of the trauma I was already experiencing when, you know, they would tell me I need counseling because that's kind of like the first thing that everyone goes to is like, you need probably need therapy, go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And it would put me in these counsel sessions and it felt, it didn't feel genuine. It never felt real to me. I never could make a connection with anybody that I was speaking with, mostly because I felt like no one didn't understand what I was going through. Everyone wanted me to see it from a positive perspective or mm-hmm. um, they never were able to speak to the dark parts of my life. And so when you when you put that with someone who feels like they're isolated and what they're going through is strategically just them. Like no one has ever been through what I went through. No one don't understand how I'm feeling because they've never felt this way. Well, that was mostly because no one to me was ever willing to speak out and tell me how they felt in their process. It was just, here's how you get there. And so when I got older and, you know, I started to get into church and started reading, it started my healing process. But I think that at the time I used religion as a mask to kind of hide what I was really feeling. You know, mm-hmm. it was a way to just speak a scripture over your life or get in church and get around people who seem so happy and say, how you doing sister? How you doing brother? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm great. And as I began to rise in financial wealth, you know, when I became a police officer, it was easy to continue to hide behind that mask. 
it was easy to continue to pretend that I was healed and I was whole and go to church and serve in ministry and come out and say, I've been through this. And in my mind, I had come to the conclusion that because I made it out, that was me healing and I'm an overcomer. Like, oh, I'm I'm doing this with my life now. And I could have been here. I could have been there. So, hey, I'm healed. I'm there. I've moved past it. But I had never had to look my trauma in the face and try to figure out the why of it. And last year, um, when I hit, you know, one of the all-time lows, I'll say 2019, I was finally put in a position to where everything that I had used to try to cover up and mask, I no longer had those things in my life. You know, I lost my car. I ended up moving here. Um, I didn't have a job. I was forced to look at the real me. And in me trying to heal, I had to go back and, like I said, write out some of the things that I had went through that I had pushed all the way to the back of my mind. And when I got that information and I realized that the fact that I didn't heal was affecting my children, my son attempted suicide because of you know some of the things that I was feeling and experiencing. And in that, I felt like this is a cycle. I was like, this is a cycle. It was my mother, my grandmother, and now it's me. I just tried to figure out, well, how do I break this cycle? And one thing that I thought of was, what did I need when I was a child? What did I need to see modeled in front of me in order for me to have maybe healed back then? And so my intentions were, okay, I'm going to become the person I needed to see, someone who's vulnerable, someone Mm -hmm. who's transparent, because apparently everything that I've been doing is not working. Just sitting in somebody's session and dumping out all my problems and waiting for them to give me the checklist to fix it it wasn't helping me. And so in beginning my healing process, the first step I took was talking to someone I trust about it. Not in a way to say, hey, here's my problems. How do I deal with it? Or I need advice, but I really need somebody to talk to about some of the things that I've never been able to speak to anyone about. And it was with someone I trusted. And that person at the time was my husband. You know, it was some in those conversations. It also revealed some of the things that I've made mistakes and did because of my trauma. So it was having the conversation, getting those things out, and not being ashamed, being able to forgive the people who hurt me because I wouldn't have been able to heal properly because, like I said, it would have all been based on resentment. I wanted to get to the place where I could have compassion for some of the people that hurt me to try to understand their stories. And not everybody got that treatment. Like my stepfather didn't get that treatment. I'm not going to lie. I didn't try to understand his story, but I was able to forgive him and say, I forgive you for what you've done to me. And in my forgiveness, I had to think like, if I saw him on the side of the road, needing a meal, would I feed him? And when I got to the place that that answer was yes, that was where I, me personally was like, okay, then I must, you know, be walking in that forgiveness. Um, because before that wouldn't have been the answer. And so it was just a daily process of just continuing to forgive, like, because those thoughts come back up, those feelings come back up. The remembrance of the pain that these people caused me, it comes back up. And and I'm constantly reminded, like, do you remember when they did this to you? And in that moment, I choose to say, I forgive them. I will sometimes have to say it out loud. I forgive them. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm going to turn on my music. I'm going to continue to dance, cooking this chicken in my air fryer, whatever that looks like. I'm not mm-hmm. going to allow that thought to consume me. And that is that has been my process of walking in my truth and not worrying about who image I'm going to taint by speaking my truth. Because I feel like if they wanted me to talk about them better, then they should have treated me better. 
But since they didn't, everything that they did to me, I own. Like I own my story and no one is going to be a narrator and try to change it. And so if me telling people, you know, what my stepdad did to me makes him look bad, he has the choice to either take accountability or continue to hide from it. And you put him in that position to where he had to choose and he still hasn't made the right choice, but that's not on me. What's on me is speaking my truth, owning my story, owning my truth, and not letting anyone tell me how to write it. Um, let anyone tell me how I should talk about it. And in me doing that, I have unintentionally in the beginning have caused healing for so many other people to begin to walk into their truth as well. So it's a day-to-day process for me. And, and every day, you know, I'm still faced with different things that my trauma caused me that I have to confront and walk in truth about, you know, that I may have hurt other people because I was hurt. And that's something that I have to take accountability for and not only get their forgiveness, but love on them and change, you know, my behavior. So it's a daily journey for me. You can't see me, but I was just nodding my head through <laughs> literally every word you spoke was yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. So it's a journey. Life is a journey. It's not a destination. Healing is not a destination. It's not a place that you can just get to, you know, mm-hmm. and if we look at it like it's a place, we will continue to be upset with ourselves when we feel like we haven't arrived. We have to give ourselves credit for the daily decisions that we make and the daily marks and continue to every day choose to walk in healing. Beautifully said. Yeah, you talked about finding someone that you can trust to share with. And I th- and you also talked about um, the inadequacy that you felt in therapy because no one was able to relate. Yeah. And, uh, and I really, I, f- I really feel you. Uh, and that's a part of why I started this is um, is because of that that experience. I think that's a shared experience, um, and that's that's something that I definitely felt in my healing journey. And, and as I started to um, to share with other survivors, I found so much healing just just by being able to talk to somebody who had a similar experience. And um, yeah, so I I'm curious to hear. I'm so glad that um, that you had that person and your husband, but, um, what, like, what does trust mean to you and, and how did you know that you had it? How do you feel it? And, um, like, how did you know that you had the right person to speak to, to share with, to open up to? It came, my trust for somebody is not just about whether or not I think they will, you know, tell someone my business, but for me to have the ability to be vulnerable with them and not feel judged or feel as if I was looked down upon. And I was able to, you know, get a friend to where I can just sit there. And I don't, it wasn't like a wake up moment to where I, I tested it out. Like here, let me tell her this and see if she does something with it. But it was just a feeling of feeling safe. You know, when I was around her, even our conversation that it was mm-hmm. a friend outside of my husband, it was just like, it was like a connection there to where it was like, you know what? I feel like I could talk to her about anything, you know? And I remember it was some things that, cause this was a different part of my healing process to where I was able to say exactly how I felt and get it all out and just be able to confide in her about things and not feel like she was going to look at me differently. And even with my husband, you know, some things at first I was afraid to tell him, but 
the more that, you know, I realize, okay, he's not going to where he cares about my well-being. He cares about who I am as a person. I can tell him these things and he gives me the space to do it. Not make me feel like, hurry up and tell me everything you need to tell me. And, oh my God, let's do this. Or Because sometimes I don't need somebody to tell me what they're going to do about my problems or what I should do. I just want you to listen. And Mm -hmm. I believe that we all have that person in our life um, in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes that person may be us. You trusting yourself to tell your truth. And if all you have is a pen and paper, it doesn't have to be a physical person. And I pray that everyone, you know, are able to find that in their lives. But even if it starts with just you writing it down on paper and just getting it out and reading it to yourself out loud, you know, you're talking about it. That's the steps. You're able to verbally say it out of your mouth and give life to your story. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's, that that's very important. So I mean, my, my way may be different from somebody else's, but there's a healing process that all of us have some sort of resignation with. You also talked um, about forgiveness. What is what is forgiveness to you? Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm interested in in that process. As is the uh, would I would I feed him the would I offer him a meal? You know, if if he were hungry, I I found that really interesting. Is that kind of how you gauge it? Mm-hmm. For me, my forgiveness, forgiveness to me means being able to love someone despite what they've done. And the he was the example because he was the hardest person I figured in my life that I could never love, right? Because mm-hmm. of just how much he's done to me. But being able to forgive somebody meaning you're willing to love them beyond their mistakes. Not like your love is not based on what they've done, but because of who you are. And so in my faith and in my beliefs, I believe that, you know, me loving you symbolizes to me my forgiveness. Me me being able to love you despite the things you said, despite the things you've done. Now, love doesn't mean I have to give you access to me. So I would never say, yeah, me and my stepdad are going out to have tea. No, um, <laughs> I, there's no relationship that needs to be had in order for you to feel like you forgave somebody because some people don't need to have access to your life because you are at a place of growth that they don't line up with. So I'm at a place in my life to where a relationship with my stepfather just is, is redundant. There's no, nece- there's no need or necessity for it. But I have a, I don't love him like, oh, I love this person, but I can love on him because of who the fact that I feel like I've made mistakes too. And I want somebody to love me throughout my mistakes. And who am I to exalt myself above someone else to say that I'm worthy of forgiveness, but someone else isn't, you know, like where is the, the meter that we gauge? Okay. This one is so bad that you can't really forgive somebody for this, but all I did was did this. So that's, that can be, you know, make its way into the gates. And so for me, it's just, I don't exalt myself above the people who hurt me. Now I do feel like I make way better decisions and mentally I'm at a more mature place to understand that some things are not okay. But for me, it it came behind my compassion of having compassion for people. And I care more about, you know, his soul than I care about his actions, because it's like, I want you to get it together, because if you don't, your future is just devastating. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I think that that's where my forgiveness came in. And when it comes to somebody that I do care about, like my mother, when I heard her story, it allowed me to forgive her through my compassion for a while. You've had a really tough life. And if I was in your shoes, 
what would I have done, you know, growing up with drug addicts as parents and being 14 and being preyed on by older men and you in that, you know, finding it normal, you know what I'm saying? For an older man to be with a younger woman. So I had to somewhat have, I had to have compassion, not somewhat. I had to have compassion for my mother and come from a place of love of giving her that something that she hadn't experienced in her life. Somebody who understands and who me understanding after what she put me through probably spoke more because I'm someone she hurt, but yet I was willing to love her and tell her like, mom, it's okay. You made these choices, but it doesn't define who you are. You know, you can take what you've been through and use it to help someone else. And I still love you. That speaks volumes. And that was how my forgiveness was modeled practically with her. Thank you. That's beautifully said. Well, thank you. And it it also, um, I love uh, what you talked about with, uh, with extending compassion or extending love to uh, another person. And then that not meaning that they need to have access to you. That was perfectly said. And that's so important uh, that, that boundary and that understanding, because ultimately like coming to that conclusion, I can't have this person in my life. And that isn't, you know, that isn't required um, for me to find this within myself because uh, that that decision is also a part of loving yourself. Yeah, uh, saying I'm not going to subject myself to something that's unhealthy. Exactly. Exactly. There's a Buddhist practice for extending compassion and growing compassion within oneself, and it's it actually involves uh, meditating and ex- and extending compassion to someone you love, someone a loved one, and then extending compassion to a stranger, someone that you don't know mm-hmm. at all and have no feelings for, um, and then extending compassion to an enemy, and uh, and hearing you talk about that just made me just made me think of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's important. Compassion is a very important component, and you have to understand that everyone has a story, you know. Yeah. And my compassion for my stepdad just extended recently. You know, when I was able to learn about his upbringing, but I'm not saying it excuses his behavior, you know, and what he chose to do with his past, but I didn't create him. I don't have a heaven or hell to put him in or whatever, you know, someone's belief is, is I can't control him. I can only control me and how I respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean about like um, their story helping you not in terms of, you know, it doesn't excuse anything, but I think for me knowing a little bit of, of their story always helps me to extend that compassion because it's, uh, it, it makes them human and I can step into their shoes and, uh, and I, I'm not dehumanizing them. I'm not making them just a monster. That's just what they did. And just understanding that, you know, that they're, that they're more than just that, no matter how terrible that thing was. Yeah. And uh I don't know, but <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't fix what happens, but it helps me start to to heal the part that I'm left with, which is, you know, the ramifications, the the results of their actions, those consequences for me in my life. Yeah. Your faith seems very important to you and I would love to hear more about the part that it's played in your healing. It keeps me going because I believe and I have faith that things will get better and that everything in my life that God has taken me to or taken me through has a purpose to it. 
And mm-hmm. if I could focus on the who and not the why, meaning the story that God gave me, I'm able to help other people. He considered me strong enough to be able to handle it. And when I thought about the why is this happening to me? Why did this have to be my story? I was a victim, you know, and my faith in believing that there is something good to come out of it makes it more powerful and takes me out of that victim mindset to being a victor and knowing that I overcame and I chose to heal. The victory isn't just making it. The victory isn't just, oh, I made it through this and I'm still here. The victory is choosing to heal and choosing to take corrective measures to get better. And that's where my faith comes in at, is that I depend on God completely. And I trust that the story that he gave me have a purpose. So I gave pain I gave my pain purpose and that's very impactful and powerful to me. Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty dope. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that for me, you know, policing was, you know, it was my career goal and my dream to feel like I would be in a position to help people and, save people. You know, it kind of felt, gave me this heroic type of um, feeling. But once I got on the force, I realized that you really don't have the time to be impactful. I mean, you come in for what is someone's worst day and all you do is make a bunch of decisions and put them in a place to actually get help. Like you arrest somebody, take them to jail. You really don't have much time to, you know, sit down, talk or share a story. And if you do, you got to rush it. And in being a police officer, I felt like the, which ties into what would I like to see different is there's no compassion. You know, that's something that I would love to see change because you see so much trauma that it takes away that human part of you that has compassion for someone else's situation and where they are in life. And I, not going to lie, I saw myself falling victim to that because you can respond to you know, a call where, you know, someone has just been killed or less drastic, you respond to a dog complaint of somebody barking. Well, you respond to these simultaneously and you're going from one call to the next that you don't have enough time to sit and, you know, feel what's actually going on. It's just, what does the book say I have to do in this situation? Okay, let me follow the procedures to get this situation taken care of and handled and boom, I'm on to the next. So you don't have time to be compassionate. You don't have time to sit and understand the why. Like you're there to just be the the segue to the next stage. And that really started to bother me as I got, you know, within my career, within with a couple of years. And so my choice to walk away from policing, it wasn't honestly my choice. I wanted to continue to be a police officer. Even when I started writing this book, I still was like, okay, well, I'm just going to continue to look for a good department to work for. Um, But I'm going to write the book. And as I got more into the book and started to share my story and, you know, be on social media because I wasn't on there at first, the impact that I was able to see, it was like that piece of me that wanted that, that wanted to be that compassionate person and help people. I started to see that it was more effective in what I was doing than being a police officer. And it's it's weird to say, but as I continued Mm -hmm. down this journey of like writing the book and talking to people and interacting with people and seeing the impact that I was making, God started giving me a vision of how big it actually can be. Like it may seem like it's small now, but 
it can be so much bigger. And my vision began to change to where it was like, okay, well, this is what I want to do. It's not about the money. I took a huge pay cut. I went from making six figures to driving for Instacart, but it was about the impact that I was making. And as I saw, like I said, the little seeds that I was planting and how they were growing and developing, my desire to be a police officer started to fade. And um, I, I think that that was, that was like a, it took time. It wasn't just like this decision, like, okay, nope, no cop. I'm going to write a book. Like, no, <laughs> um, my heart just started to change. And the more when I, one day I looked up and I was like, I really don't want to be a police officer anymore. <laughs> like I literally said it to my husband because the whole time that's all I wanted, you know, but I, I saw that the part of me that got created to do this, that part was awakened. And when that part woke up, it was like, it took over. <laughs> And that was it. What was that definitive moment for you? Was there anything that specific that brought it on? Or it was just like a culmination of this building feeling? I think it was both. But then I think it was when I will say when we were doing Instacart, me and my husband got to the point to where just our savings was gone. Um, We were kind of living paycheck to paycheck. And part of it was because I wasn't working. I was full time working on bringing this book about. And I was like, well, I guess I can go get a police job that disgusted me. It didn't feel like I was Mm -hmm. excited as if it was something that I was supposed to do. It felt like it would have been a settle. It would have been like me moving backwards. It really felt like I would have been backpedaling to be a cop. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but that feeling, it just didn't resonate with me. I was like, no, I can't do that. I just have to keep going and believe that God going to provide because this is what I believe that I'm supposed to be doing. And he did financially. He did. And I was able to continue, which has been a little over a year still doing this. And so that was the moment for me. Like I have my work boots in there. I still have my bag with my police equipment in it. And going back to that bag felt like, like I said, just moving backwards. It felt like looking back at my past. And I just looked at it and it was like, this isn't me anymore. And I just continued. I'm so glad that you we're able to uh, to recognize that when it when it happens and that you're you're being true to yourself and true to your path. Yeah. It's definitely that's definitely where I am. What sort of changes would you like to see in uh, in the police system or in the justice system? I mean, there's a lot of things, but one of the biggest things is and I feel like you can't teach this. So it's kind of hard to say that they need to change it, but there's no compassion. And mm-hmm. compassion isn't even being taught. You know, when you're in an academy, you're just taught response, response, response. This is how you respond. If this happened, this is what you do. If this happens from you doing that, then this is what you do. This is what you have the ability to do. And these are the things you can't do. But there's never the compassionate piece of, and sometimes I understand you don't have time to be compassionate. All you have time to do is just respond and, and think fast. But I think that giving police officers the time to be compassionate and to express themselves and be human, it's like as a police officer, you have to be this robot and they make you mm-hmm. feel like you have to be this robot. Like you're not here to care about these people. You're just here to to solve and investigate and move forward. But if we're able to have compassion, I think that's with anybody outside of policing, in any profession. You get the bad apples when the compassion leave and the love and understanding that somebody doesn't have to come from your background for you to care about what they're going through. 
or for you not to make a, a preconceived notion that something is wrong with them or even by the color of their skin to judge what you think about them, but getting the chance to know people in your community, you know, and there's places in the department where they have like community outreach. And I think that when you're hiring somebody, that should be a trait that you look for is somebody who possesses compassion and they don't look for that. They look for the sternness, the discipline, the reactive time. How fast can you react to this or how good at your responding to this? And that qualifies you as a police officer, but they don't take the time to get to know some of the people that they're hiring. Cause not every police officer is bad, but you do have some that don't have good intentions. And so, like I said, it's a very huge dynamic because if you work down the list, there's so many things that need to change. But I think that that's definitely a start. Thank you for being willing to share that and talk about that. Yeah, no problem. I have had a very different experience than you have growing up in this country. Yeah. Representation is so important. And I would so love if we could lean into that. And if if you have anything that you would like to share about this experience that I will never have, which is being African-American in this country. You know, a lot of my conflict, of course, was internal. But I think that I didn't really recognize the the difference in that until I got older. And um, there there aren't a lot of opportunities for African-Americans, mostly because we were never taught, you know, I feel like a lot of the importance of school or just discipline, you know, a lot of our parents were traumatized. And so when you have traumatized, which dates all the way back to slavery, when you have all these different generations of people who are just being traumatized over and over, and then you traumatize your children. And then when your children grow up, they traumatize their children because that's what you were taught. And so there's a lot of principles that were never given to us as African-Americans that some Caucasians were afforded to, you know, they were afforded, you know, when they came in their their parents weren't slaves or, you know, being just, you know, if that makes sense. So it's like for an African-American, when you are handed down bondage and trauma and that's your generation of wealth, you know, you have some families where they hand down wealth or they hand down you know, businesses or stuff. We don't know what that looks like because we were oppressed from the very beginning to not be allowed to have those things or do those things or learn how to read. So it's kind of like most of the things that we try to do is trying to unlearn the things that we were taught. And that's a very hard thing to do when that's all that you know. And so as I got older, I began to just, you know, fight for certain opportunities. And I would even speak to when I got older as a police officer. When I was on a department, it was kind of like, and it was even communicated to me, like, you should just be lucky that we letting you here. You know, like you should just be happy to be a cop and have a badge. Don't think that you deserve to work in any of the extra assignments, like to be an investigator or to be a detective or to serve in different units. And you weren't given the opportunity to, but the white officers were. They were given the opportunity to uh, be heard for different assignments or visions that they had to be a homicide investigator. But it was like, if you were African-American, you were disciplined differently. You were disciplined at a more harsher rate. And if they have a book and the book says, okay, this is 10 of how high the discipline can go. Well, they started with you at 10 and tried to find a way to start with everyone else at one. Mm. And so- 
it was it was it was very difficult, you know, even to navigate on a department because it was like I have all these different capabilities, but they're not willing to see past that. They only see the color of my skin. So they have this preconceived notion about who I am that they're not willing to give me different opportunities. Yeah, I hear um, talking about the discipline. I hear a lot of that in uh, in schools as well. Yeah. And I mean, in schools, you know, you can do something or say something and you get suspended. And it was like they found a way to try to protect each other. But it's because they have this this preconceived, like I said, notion about you that you're trouble or that you don't really care about yourself or care about your future. But they don't know that this is just how you was brought up. Like you don't know any different. You don't know any better. And so instead of, like I said, coming from a position of compassion, of trying to understand your background, understanding why you make some of the decisions and willing to help and teach you something different because you may not know. As a child, I didn't know, you know, that me fighting because I was angry wasn't the way to handle it. When I'm home and when my mother and my stepfather get mad at each other, they fight, Mm -hmm. you know, so you can't say, well, you should just know better. Whereas a child, if all you see is your mother and and father fighting and then you're being sexually abused, you have all these different emotions and feelings that you're not able to navigate through. And you grow up. And in my house, we barely had food to eat. There was times where we would have to go to our neighbor's house and eat and not let them know that we didn't have food, but just act like we wanted to hang out or we steal from the store because we're starving and we have no money. Our parents are in the house sleep or high on drugs. And for me, sometimes my mother was intoxicated. And as a kid at nine years old, you're hungry. Your stomach is touching your back. All you think of is food. Okay, well, where can I get food? We'll go to the store and you don't want to steal. But if I don't get this honey bun, I feel like I'm going to die of hunger. So you Mm -hmm. steal to try to eat or you go to school. And because your parents couldn't afford to buy you a pair of shoes other than the shoes you had from you know, three years ago, you're getting made fun of and being bullied and you're being, and it's easy to say, oh, stop bullying each other. And I feel like schools handle that so differently. Now you don't want to be seen as that person because it is hurtful and you want to either not be there. And some kids, you know, commit suicide, but then you steal shoes or you act out of anger. If you're not somebody who has the opportunity to steal, you fight or you get upset or you internalize or you shut down. And so being able to have that compassion of understanding that everybody doesn't have the same experience or upbringing you do, and you can't look down on everyone as if this is just how they are, but try to get to know people and understand their story and understand the why, and you'll be amazed at what you find out. Thank you for talking about that. No, no problem. And this is, um, I just had an argument with somebody about this recently. So I'm going to say something you might disagree, but if you see somebody stealing something in a store, especially if it's kids, especially if it's food, don't say anything. Don't turn them in. I just, it's so funny with the children thing that you said, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, Um, no, that's, that's all I have to say. (laughs) So when I was a police officer, it was a a call about a a 15 year old that was stealing out of the family dollar. And I respond to the call and he had, he didn't have like a new PlayStation or, you know, something like that. He literally had food items like noodles and bread and stuff like that. And I could have easily arrested him and taken him to jail. But when I took him out of the store, I paid for the stuff, first of all. And when I took the time to say, why were you stealing? 
I found out that his mother was in jail and it was him and his eight-year-old sister at home and they didn't have any food and he didn't have any money and his sister was hungry and he just wanted to try to get her something to eat. And the other officers were, were upset with me and they were Caucasian officers because they feel like, no, he's a delinquent. He need to go into jail. And to me, I'm like, he literally is communicating with you his need. And what happens is you get children who won't tell you their need because of that type of response. And they feel like you don't care. You don't care why I was stealing. All you care about is that I was stealing and I need to go to jail. And he was reluctant to even talk in front of them. And I was able to pull him to the side. And when I talked to him, I didn't charge him. I paid for the stuff. I gave him a warning and I took him home. And I told him if they were ever hungry again to call me. And I think that that is where the compassion comes in. I could have easily followed the book. Well, did he commit theft? Yeah, he sure did. Could I take him to jail? Yes, I can. But what could I do in this moment to change the situation and not just, you know, handle it? And that was something that I chose to do. But I was able to do that because I saw myself when I was his age and what I did and the choices that I made. And even if you haven't had that experience, try to, for one moment, put yourself in their shoes and understand it. I'm not going to lie. Some people you can't do that with, but I would say to at least try and don't become insensitive. If you run into somebody who you weren't able to do that with, then they weren't the person, but I would say, continue to do that and continue to allow it to be who you are. And you'll realize it'll just become a, per- a part of your personality. Thank you so much for doing that. I mean, for talking about that, but also for helping and for doing what you could to heal in that moment that is that is what a police officer should be yeah and i'm so glad that you were able to be there for him in that moment in his life you know i was definitely grateful and so that's where i'm at now my goal and my desire honestly is not to be rich or wealthy so that i can have everything i didn't have when i was younger is I would love to be a philanthropist, to see needs in the world and be able to go out and not have a limit on how much I can help somebody, but completely be able to be a giver and fulfill their needs through whatever God it blesses me with. That would be my goal. Speaking to to other survivors listening, um, do you have anything to share or say to them? I mean, I just, just walk in your truth. Everything that happened to you, you own it is your story and you have the right to express it and tell it however you feel like you need to in order for you to reach a place that you're able to heal and confront your trauma, no matter what that looks like. It's not about being hurtful, but you have to think about yourself first and if you speaking out tarnish to someone else, once that happens, that's up to them. And so just have the courage and faith to understand that you speaking out also helps if you're someone who wants children or wants to have children. The freedom that you don't seek now, you pass down to your children and now they have to try to find a way to fight it. And I don't know, for me, I didn't want to leave that up to chance. And if you could speak to yourself as a child's going through everything that you went through, what would you, what would you say to yourself? That's hard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're good. That's, that's really hard. Um, because I don't feel like any words could have helped, you know, me as a child. 
of what I had to go through. So it's really hard to say what words I would have said to myself, but looking at where I am now, I would have just told myself that one day all of this will be worth something. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really it because it has I see the worth of it now, but I wouldn't have understood that then. But just like you said, it's kind of that thing where it's like an insult and compliment at the same time. You know, <laughs> it tells you to endure, but on the positive ends of that, it tells you that it's gonna be made into something that's gonna be worth everything you had to suffer through. Yeah. I liked what you said earlier as well. Um, and that, you know, makes perfect sense that words couldn't have helped, but um but that you you said earlier that you are trying to be the person that you needed. Yeah. And so no words, just being that person. Yeah. We yeah. all can do that. We, I think we all have the ability to choose to be that person in a good way. And so that's, 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 it, it requires intentionality. Like you have to be intentional about doing yeah. that. So, and there's, there's so much more I'd love to ask you, but if it's all right, I'd love to ask you, um, about uh, being a parent and doing this work and healing for yourself, but also healing for your children and uh, and how how you're doing that. It all plays into, like I said, me being what I needed. And so as a mother who, and as a mother, you know, I'm giving my children the voice that I didn't have, you know, and just doing certain things, not to so much not outlive the shadow, but telling my kids about my trauma, revealing to them what trauma looks like and how to recognize it and giving my kids the the freedom to heal the way that they find necessary and the freedom to be who they want to be and not who I need them to be. Mm. And I talk to my children. I model what um, mistakes look like because sometimes I make mistakes as a parent. You know, I may raise my voice or I may get upset or you know, react in a way that wasn't okay. I don't just go in my room and be like, you know, I shouldn't have done that. No, I go to my children. I repent to them and I let them know, you know, mom shouldn't have responded like that. And sometimes we think that being vulnerable to our kids is a weakness because since we are the adults, they have to respect us. Well, respect is a two-way mm-hmm. street. You know, they're humans, tiny humans, but I want my children to know I respect them. Like I shouldn't have talked to you like that, that I could have, I could have handled that better. And give them the opportunity to speak too. And sometimes I told my children, like, if I hurt you, come and tell me. And it hasn't been too often, you know, here recently, but I remember once my son came to me and said, mom, I didn't like how you yelled at me. And yeah, if he deserved to get in trouble, I'm like, you know what, you're right. I probably could have done that differently. And so it's a journey, you know, they're learning to be children. I'm learning how to be a mother because it wasn't modeled for me, but I can't use that as an excuse to have bad parenting. And so it's kind of like a communication thing. I feel like who can tell you better what they need or what they want than the child themselves. And sometimes, of course, they don't know what they want, but we're able to distinguish in their nonverbal and verbal communication what they really want and what they need as as children. And so it's a daily process for me. It's a daily journey. I can't say I have it all together, but I'm being the parent that I didn't have. And yes, I'm making mistakes, but you have to have accountability. And I believe that in me doing that, when my children get to the age or get to a place that they have to choose between being accountable or making excuses, they'll choose the same thing. Again, you can't see it, but just emphatic nodding on my end. That was oh, uh, so much agreement for everything you just said. So much agreement and enthusiasm. That is so what is needed in the world. <laughs> You're awesome. 
And you're also on mute. And I just want to let you know that. Oh, I said, thank you. I appreciate it. I don't know how to do that. I said, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I got worried I lost you there for a minute. And then I saw it. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, she doesn't know. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and for, for being so... Oh, so honest and raw and vulnerable and for uh for sharing your your story and this amazing journey that you are on well i thank you more for giving me the you know the space to do so because that's important i could have the story and not have anywhere to tell <laughs> it so i thank you for giving me the space well thank you for coming because the the space is just space until you get here so <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to uh, to have had this dialogue, and yeah, and I'm so excited for part two. And I, oh, I wish you yeah. all the best in uh, in your process and your writing. Oh, thank you so much, and I best of luck oh, on your you. podcast. I pray it takes off. I know it probably already has, but that you get you accomplish what you set out to accomplish. I feel the same for you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to see the episode notes for links to Janita's website and to her book. Follow her on Facebook for updates on part two. Please write in to podcast.findingok at gmail.com with feedback, questions, and episode requests. Let me know if you're interested in joining me on the show. I would love to have you. Finding OK is crowdfunded and paid for out of pocket. I am unemployed with the pandemic and you only need $1 to help. Please visit buymeacoffee.com backslash finding okay to contribute. A link can be found on the podcast website www.finding-ok.com and I post links routinely on my Facebook page. I also post relevant articles, art, memes, and resources daily. Feel free to friend me. Hecate F-O-K. H-E-C-A-T-E-F dot O-K-A-Y. You can also find me on Instagram. I have created a private Finding OK Facebook group for survivors. You are welcome there, and I hope you'll join us. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast to help me reach more listeners. Reviews are featured on the website, and you get a shout-out on the next episode. If you can't afford to donate, leaving a review and sharing online or through word of mouth is the best way you can help the podcast. Please share, subscribe, and donate if you can. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving. Keep on pointing.